everybody. Welcome to Actually at Capacity. Today I have Alex Rubenstein on who uh, writes for the gray zone, does not work for the gray zone <laughs> as, uh, as it seems to be a very common misconception um, and uh, was famously name dropped in the recent uh, Daily Beast article that has been of conversation. So, Alex, why are you flirting with the far right? And <laughs> no, I don't think kidding. I actually know anybody that I would consider far right. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't. I don't hang out with far rightists in person. Um, I I never really have. I did live with some libertarians um, by by like chance um, mm-hmm. for a time when I lived in D.C., but like that's that's about the closest it gets. Um, my whole life, all my friends have been like very left wing. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not close enough to play footsies with them, as Alexander <laughs> Reed Ross uh, says. <laughs> and it's And it's funny because, you know. I once called uh, the Daily Beast um, a content mill for the intelligence community. And then they introduced me. Alex Rubenstein worked for RT, which the intelligence community says was a key player in the Russian interference campaign in 2016. So, I mean, they just like proved my point right there. And then, you know, I was actually because the thing was, is that he emailed me and a bunch of other people and he was, you know, it was obvious what he was going to do. Everyone kind of knows his reputation. Um, so, you know, I thought that the best thing to do would be to write to the editor and put a statement out and like, you know, put my, publish my email to him because otherwise I wasn't going to be quoted fairly. Right. Um, so I actually yeah. thought that I wound up being quoted more fairly than I would have been otherwise, you mm-hmm. know? And so it's like, I said in my, in my statement, um, you know, because they were attacking me for uh, for saying that, you know, some of the boogaloos kind of defied uh, the left right paradigm, which I, I believe is true. I mean, you have them supporting LGBT causes, Antifa, even uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, so, you know, I, I, I wrote that, you know, as far as like fascists in their ranks, like I totally disavow them. I don't I don't support fascists. I've been uh, exposing fascists, uh, since very early in my career. Um, and yet I'm playing footsies with the far right. So <laughs> it just, they, they proved my point And then they contradicted themselves in just the four or so paragraphs that they had devoted towards me. Yeah. That, I mean, that was, um, that was quite a colorful piece. I wasn't actually familiar with uh, this author at all. Um, I, but... I have to be honest with you. I didn't read the whole thing. I, yeah, I had like I six paragraphs left and I'm like, I'm done. I can't, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, whenever I see like people take Russia gate too seriously, I'm like a little, that's kind of a red flag for me. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, then I just kind of sign off on that front but like it's it's interesting and i guess we'll we'll get to this um what we were going to talk about this piece that you just put out i always find it really interesting how um these the same sort of people who go like oh yeah like these people are flirting with the far right or whatever then they work with you know u.s intelligence agencies or like the military agencies and support 
imperialist ventures, which seem to be like the real alliance between the left and the right in that respect. I don't even know what if these labels mean anything anymore, but you have a new article out. Um, it is about intersectional imperialism. Do you want to sort of recap that and your the point in that piece? Yeah. So, I mean, like we're, I, I would think that your viewers are pretty familiar with uh, the concepts of uh, responsibility to protect and humanitarian interventionism and all that. So I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I, I talk about intersectional imperialism as a maturation of those concepts where um, these foreign interventions, resource extraction, occupation, even coup d'etats are uh, increasingly being used by the Biden administration to, uh, I'm sorry, are being justified by the Biden administration uh, by uh, wokeness, um, by the uh, diversity of um, those imperialist bodies, um, by their uh, inclusion of uh, women, LGBTQ people, um, minorities. Um, and, and we see this, like, you know, this was happening even during the Trump administration. Um, but it's really like, you know, going into outer space now with all this. Um, you have uh, the State Department, like, if like if you do a search for diversity from the State Department on Twitter, you're going to get like 20 results in the past month. It's really absurd. Um, so that that's really what the piece is about. And then it also talks about how identity politics are playing a role in uh, not just, um, you know, recruitment efforts of the CIA or NATO or the State Department, but also in like justifying um, the interventions that those bodies undertake. Yeah. And so R2P, I think I, I will recap that because I, I don't think a lot of people are super familiar, but it's the responsibility to protect doctrine, which um, I think, you know, it, it's interesting because I've taken, um, you know, classes in international law and um, this is like a very big theme. And I remember like learning about Libya as an example of why R2P is important, um, which seems kind of bizarre, right? If we look at the sort of impacts that the Libya intervention had, but even still you kind of saw um, uh, invocation of progressive, uh, progressive issues when, you know, there was that weird lie about Gaddafi giving his soldiers Viagra to sexually assault women, which ended up being completely fabricated. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it is a very interesting evolution. Um, so do you think that this new sort of manifestation shares similarities with earlier forms um, before R2P? Like for me, I kind of see an evolution from like I look at the mandate system uh, in the Middle East and the rationale was we need to promote good governance. Like these people don't know how to govern themselves. Right. I don't know. Or do you think that there's something that makes this uh, unique or this moment unique? In well, I think this moment's unique just because it's taking all those uh, previous uh, justifications and kind of um, rebranding them for like a, zoomer age id poll audience you know um but you know it's like 
I actually, because I'm working on an article about about Yemen and Al Qaeda right now, and um, and I, I I I didn't include this in my article, but I I found a article from the Washington Post from 2016, and I had actually tweeted about it at the time and totally forgot. But it was saying, you know, one side effect of the war in Yemen right now is that more men are cooking and cleaning. And that was the headline. I'm not, I'm not joking. It's totally absurd. And I don't even know if this will make it into my new piece because my, my article that I'm working on now is, is not like kind of a uh, takedown of identity politics at all. It has nothing to do with it. Um, but like that just like shows you just how absurd this is. And it's not, it's not totally new to the Biden administration. Um, it's not, you know, it, it, you could probably find a lot of examples of this in the, um, Clinton administration going back that far. But, uh, what we're seeing now is like this, like hyper wokeness, like, you know, um, that, that is being used to appeal to a younger generation because like, let's face it, the government has like lost a lot of its respectability. Uh, like, I don't, I don't know any young people, maybe you do, you know, going to school in international relations, but any young people that like, are like, yeah, NATO, I do actually know people that were very, I I think, I mean, this was during my, my undergraduate and my master's, I I did political science and there are, there's definitely a contingent of people, especially like, you know, when you take Middle East politics, um, like, I, I mean, I don't want to speak ill of anyone because I think like, you know, a lot of people are good intention. Um, but there's definitely a strain of people that want to, you know, are going to go on to the Atlantic Council or to like Brookings and stuff like that. Like these kinds of, um, centrist think tanks that are a little too, uh, too nice to Saudi and a little too obsessed with Iran, um and so there's i've definitely kind of observed that but i do think that it is under i think there people there are some people who really believe in the humanitarian component of it so for instance um with venezuela is another one and i i do a lot more middle east politics than latin america so i can't speak too authoritatively on it but I, I do remember when the whole Guaido thing first came to the forefront, there were a lot of liberals um, in my program and like that's at my school that were cheering on Guaido as a sort of progressive. Um, yeah, he was branded as a socialist. In yeah, he was branded as was a really socialist odd. and like a human rights kind of guy, right? Like they saw right. it as a, as a human rights uh, issue. And so I, I do think that there is definitely that. I think also, you know, for the last, and I think this came first, was um, the use of LGBT rights um, to delegitimize Palestinians. Um, right. So I feel like, you know, so many things that happen with Palestinians, like, happens first, and then it kind of yeah. Yeah. washes in. Um, but I remember, like, years ago, uh, fighting with a guy on like Twitter because he was talking about how like oh Palestinians are terrible because they don't have a pride parade or something <laughs> like. and that felt like the sort of precursor um to- yeah and you know another thing I didn't mention in my article uh 
that actually Max Blumenthal pointed out after I published it was that uh, Blinken, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, um, in, a, in his UN speech was in one breath talking about racial justice and then in the next breath talking about how the uh, International Criminal Court should drop its investigations into uh, war crimes by Israel against the Palestinians. So, I mean, yeah, and I totally agree. It's like the the politics that um, come to the forefront of the uh, of, of the Palestine issue uh, tend to be reproduced in other theaters, um, and and that's like kind of always been the case. But you know, it's interesting. You know, I I, I used to say, um, you know, back in the day, liberal activists and such would have a a a, a phrase they'd call people peps progressive except palestine and now today we have what i call poops progressives only on palestine (laughs) yeah there are people (laughs) like that too i think um especially in middle eastern communities like there are a lot of um social conservatives who are still pro-palestine um well and you saw it a lot with syria too where you know people were on one hand, supporting Palestinian resistance and then, you know, left wing Palestinian resistance. And then on the other hand, uh, they were trying to tell us that these like Al Qaeda type uh, insurgents um, that were, you know, cutting the breasts off women and cutting the heads off children were were like moderate rebels or even like more than that, like true revolutionaries. Yeah. And I think something that's that's been concerning to me um is I think like I, I've noticed that the US left and the Canadian left is very like anarchistic or like very oh, like yeah. libertarian inspired. And so they seem to sort of have uh, a, a liking for revolutionary aesthetics in a way. Um, you don't say. Than, yeah. <laughs> well, so like it, it, it seems like if there's the appearance of I'm resisting a superpower, I'm resisting this like uh, evil authoritarian, then that looks heroic to them. But what was kind of revealing is they didn't seem to think that with the capital storming or whatever you want to call it. I don't even know what the proper thing to call it. But when you saw like, you know, in their own country, when there's like this resistance aesthetics to the government suddenly it's not good anymore and right. so i'm thinking okay you were fine with it when it was you know these anti-christian fanatics um but you're not like you're you're fine with it when people were literally cutting people's heads off but you're not fine with it when it's like these like guy like QAnon shaman or whatever <laughs> <laughs> whatever not to undermine i I don't really know the yeah and i think a a really good parallel to that is the yaromaidan in ukraine where they were taking over you know government buildings and even flying like american symbols of white supremacy like the confederate flag and they were you know just universally hailed as like anti-russian freedom fighters people you know a lot of this too is like you mentioned uh human rights but like a lot of the pretext for this like imperialist intervention is corruption. Um, so ironically, you know, Joe Biden, who helped manage the coup and set up the government afterwards in Ukraine, his son, you know, was getting loads of money from um, that, that exploit. So, you know, you talk about corruption and, and it, you know, generally falls. It's like, 
we don't want our enemies to be corrupt because then they're making money, but we want to make that money, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, I feel like I I don't want to be like doom and gloom, but I feel like the Biden admin is just going to be a total disaster on that front. I know it's like just started, but on the imperialistic front, and I think your article kind of captures this very well, um, that it is, it seems to be sort of synthesizing um, the sort of uh, neoconservatism of Bush, but with like the progressivism or the progressive aesthetic of Obama admin. So I don't know, but at the same well, it's, time, I would yeah. say it's even going further than, than the Biden administration, than the Obama administration in terms of like its appeal to wokeness. Um, you know, Obama wasn't even originally on board with, you know, marriage equality for gay people. That's true. Um, mm-hmm. And now it's like, okay, we need at least like five cabinet members to be queer you know (laughs) (laughs) did he say that no 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 i'm exaggerating a little bit but you know that's really how it's shaping up to be i mean um we have the first like uh native uh secretary of interior uh we have ned price the state department spokesperson who's openly gay um we have lloyd austin the defense secretary who the media hailed uh, for breaking brass ceilings because he's a black man. Um, Is that what it's called? A brass ceiling? I've never heard that, of That's that. what they call That's That's what I pointed out in my article. I think it was Yeah, NPR. I saw, I saw you like, say that and I was like, what is that? <laughs> so yeah, ceilings? I mean, it's really, it's being um, put into hyperdrive. Um, you know, Obama was really heavy on the human rights rhetoric, but now it's now it's about inclusivity, diversity, and identity politics. I even had, uh, um, I think it was uh, uh, John Kirby, uh, the the spokesperson for the par- Department of Defense, formerly the spokesperson for the uh, State Department under Obama. He was talking about lived experience and how it guides uh, guides the decision making at the Pentagon. You know, and just to hear those kinds of buzzwords reproduced by the U.S. government, the most evil and uh, the most evil empire to ever exist, uh, the most destructive one. Um, it's it's just bizarre and mind blowing. And um, it's unfortunate to think about how many young people are going to buy into that. Yeah, I almost wonder, like, how many people are buying into it or like like I see, you know, in the article you use the term intersectional imperialism and that's become like a sort of meme in a sense on the internet and like it seems like a lot of people know what it is um and so it almost seems like now it's being so overdone and so outrageous that like the government who's putting it forward knows it's outrageous and so I'm like who is buying, like, even the people I knew who supported humanitarian intervention, I don't think they were under, like, that strong of an illusion about, um, like, like, they weren't, like, super woke, you know, right, they were just kind of, like, average, like, human rights, you know, like, yeah, centrists, right, and so, like, now I'm wondering, like, what direction is this even going in? What's, like, who's buying it? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend to have uh, my finger on the pulse of uh, Gen Z's instincts. Um, but I, all I can say is that, like, the State Department, the CIA, NATO, and I show all this in my article, 
is reproducing the kind of language that they that they use. Um, you know, I'm on I'm on Twitter, but I, I generally don't like go too far out of my circles on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't really like hang out with young people. So um, I, I can't say how far it's going. But, you know, I I I, I can I, I, I don't feel uncomfortable predicting that this is going to be used even more as we go further into the administration to uh, justify even worse things than what anything Biden has been able to do so far, you know, and, and it's, it's unfortunate because, you know, um, there was so much anti-Trump energy and then all of Trump's worst foreign policy decisions um, have uh, been maintained. Um, I've talked about this in, in, in other articles about how he, well, I mean, and then his, all his best ones, like withdrawing from Afghanistan are being reversed. Um, so, you know, but there's no, there's not really the appetite for that kind of criticism right now. Um, so it's, it's important that people like you and I are able to like kind of, um, drive a wedge, uh, a little bit and appeal to people, um, who maybe voted for Biden that, um, you know, realize are going to be able to realize that like, you know, occupying serious oil fields in the name of like the Kurdish woman's revolution is not, you know, ostensibly in that name while really just trying to profit off of the oil reserves. Um, it's not, it's not the right way. Yeah. And I don't want to like, like, I, I don't like Trump, but one thing that I preferred was that he seemed to be more upfront about what they were doing. Um, and this is something I've heard from a lot of Middle Eastern people as well as like, you know, at least he's saying we want the oil, you know, like we right. like, there's like, no illusion. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is what we're here for. Right. And, um, and I, I feel like um, I look at also like leaders like Netanyahu, who also seem to be of that strain. Like I, now there's a lot of apologetics, like Zoomer apologetics for Israel that are very woke sounding, but yeah. it's interesting to me because Netanyahu doesn't really do that. He's kind of no. more of a strong man. Um, and just being like, yep, yeah, like we want settlements, you know, like, that's right. That's that. Um, settlements. Iran lied. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, I feel like, you know, there's that kind of strain with, with Trump and Netanyahu. I can't really think about it. Bolsonaro is another one. Um, right. Whereas like, you know, with Biden, and I think also with uh, our government, Trudeau um, is also, he's also very similar in that in that respect right um and christian friedland who's also very like into the human rights language while and i think you mentioned her as well and 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 that like you know she's she's you know in bed with some uncomfortable she's actually flirting with the far right (laughs) right yeah i mean like as far right as you can get i mean like neo-nazis and you know nazi or nazi collaborator granddad yeah, it was it was because in the section I have on finance feminism, mm-hmm. um, I have uh, I think it's like the head of the uh, International Monetary Fund just listing off all these powerful women in fi- uh, you know international financial institutions um, from the IMF, World Bank, all the the European Development Central Bank or something like that. I don't I, the acronyms are hard to keep track of in, in terms of the. Uh, IFIs, the International Finance Corporations, but she mentions Christia Freeland for for some odd reason because she's the only one that's not like in banking or something um, or in finance. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, she's like, you know, a perfect example. Oh, you know, we got a woman foreign minister, but, uh, but yeah, she, you know, she whitewashed her, uh, grandfather's legacy, uh, as he was a Nazi collaborator, um, you know, Canada's role in, um, and a lot of, uh, the imperial exploits of the United States, I mean, is really under examined, um, they play, they, they do a lot, uh, to meddle in Venezuela, uh, and, uh, Honduras, they did a lot. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's gone under the radar and that's unfortunate. Um, but you know, people forget that Canada has, um, you know, these really large mining companies, um, which would directly stand to benefit from, um, like the kind of green new deal or, uh, or climate plans that Joe Biden has uh, in his pocket. So mm-hmm. I think that we're going to see a lot of greenwashing from Canada in addition to this like kind of wokeness that we're, we're seeing in the U S would yes, you agree? This, this greenwashing thing is, is something that I haven't really been as, as familiar with. And I think, you know, I've been involved in like a lot of progressive causes, but I haven't really done stuff with environmental causes. Um, I'm not like a climate change denier or anything like that. Right. I, I just haven't like it's just not I haven't focused on it very much. I've I, you know, um, but I, I just saw a headline yesterday that was talking about Lula and they like it was like he never mentioned the environment in his speech. Right. And, and something like that. And it was saying, you know, those challenges. Um, they were kind of bashing a Latin American leaders for um not properly addressing the environment um i don't know very much about like then what's going on with the environmental stuff there but i do think this is an interesting point as well well i mean just to break it down for your viewers um you know uh green policies rely on smart technology smart cars smartphones uh solar panels like all that kind of stuff and that stuff relies on rare earth minerals, which are mined, um, oftentimes by children. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's not like you can just create technology that's green from nothing. You have to you have to mine the actual material components, and uh, that comes at a great uh, cost to the environment. Um, there's a, a great documentary that I would recommend everybody watch called Planet of the Humans, um, which really breaks down how uh, all these green policies and all the leaders of the green movement are really in bed with um, the same entities that are destroying the environment and how those policies and uh, technologies um, really just, it, it's just money going into different people's pockets, you know, um, and and impacting the environment in different ways. Um, lithium, uh, you know, they, they call, uh, Evo Morales of Bolivia called the coup, the lithium coup. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, as we see, like, uh, you know, as, because Canada really has like, especially in the mining sector, they've been a big, uh, player in, um, this kind of regime change, uh, that we've seen from the U S, um, in Latin America, um, and it's because of those mining interests, um, you know, and, and I, w- I would really uh, urge people, you know, I, I, I write a lot about the U.S. coup and Hon- the U.S. backed coup in Honduras. Um, but Canada played a big role in that. And mm-hmm. Hondurans know that, you know, um, I don't know if Canadians do. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's there's definitely there's an article I think um, in this uh, in Passage, it's a Canadian magazine that recently came out. Um, I think I've discussed it before on the podcast. I think it's or, or on on a podcast because I think it it is it's a great piece. So I'll link it. But it, it essentially does talk about you know Canada's role in in imperialism in uh, and mining. Um, which I think is under-discussed. Like we always think about U.S. imperialism um, and not Canada's sort of complicity in it. Uh, what I think is fascinating about this greenwashing thing is, and it seems like the, the sort of intersectional imperialism or the woke imperialism, it, it's always evolving. Like the cause is never enough. And I, it kind of mirrors like just the general direction of wokeness in general. Like at first, you know, women were the subject of like needing protection and needing yeah. whatever. And it's like L- LGBT or like trans, trans people needing protection. Like I've seen a lot of people talking about like enemies of the U.S. But like I've seen people, Assad literally wants trans people dead. Like I see that now. Assad? Yeah, people always really? say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he like, I and like I haven't heard that one. Well, he has like socially conservative views on yeah, gender, of course, which is not uncommon in in the region. Um, yeah. but again, like, does that mean that Al Qaeda should like? If you think he's bad, like, you should right, Al Qaeda's yeah. uh, uh, views on gender, I don't think they like trans people any more than he does. But it always seems to be evolving and like becoming more specific. So this, like, you know, it never I, I really... lost you. I lost you at all. You cut out for a moment. Oh, oops. Um, yeah, no, I was just saying it always seems to be evolving, like the subject of like what needs to be protected or saved, right? Like you don't really hear, um, or at least I haven't really come across now, like this, like we need to save the women. Like that one seems to be like you know part of like the afghanistan war mm-hmm. um now it's like there's there you also mentioned that lgbt rights group in syria like tequila and oh <laughs> yeah the um the queer insurrection and liberation army yeah An army of like two dudes that, probably like, <laughs> actually exist yeah probably. i mean it, you know i don't think i don't think it ever existed as like a, a fighting unit right um i think it was like a photo op or two mm. um which you know I'd, I'd like to talk about that because you know yeah. um isis was like you know in control of raqqa and and you know that's that wasn't good um but you know instead of letting the syrian army which is comprised of arab fighters retake it they uh they used kurdish fighters the u.s used kurdish fighters and took credit for, you know, liberating Raqqa, not leaving a whole lot to liberate, destroying 70% of the city um, with, you know, um, with, with uh, NATO air power, U.S. air power, European air power, um, and, and Kurdish fighters on the ground. Um, but, you know, as, as that city was being destroyed to the tune of 70%, uh, you had all this, like, PR about, like, what what I forget what the banner that they held said it was like it was like these faggots 
uh, kill fascists or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. dominated the conversation on the left. And people were like, oh, my God, these like these Kurdish fighters, the YPG, they're doing democratic confederalism. They're against statism. They love LGBTQ rights. They love women's rights. And it's like it's not true. It's like the it's just not true. The Kurds, uh, as a uh, as a Kurdish culture, is not um, pro woman or pro LGBT. Um, and and you had the Kurds in Syria totally divorced as as people are making the case for Kurdistan. Uh, they divorced the YPG, which was you know a branding effort mostly to get money from German anarchists. Um, from, you know, the Kurds in Iraq, uh, who um, since uh, Talbani was killed uh, and Barzani is like basically in control of Iraqi Kurdistan are deeply, deeply conservative. And, and like, you know, there's no place for a woman at the, uh, at the, you know, in the government. Um, but uh, so, you know, it's ultimately the point of all that was to, you know, balkanize Syria and, and allow for uh, U.S., um, oil companies to profit from uh, Syria's oil, which was effective because of this branding campaign. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, with, with cultures, I think people are always in a rush to say like, this culture is progressive and this culture is conservative. And it's like every culture has progressives. Every culture has conservatives. Like that's just how it's going to be. Um, and it's, it just really seems like, I don't know. I, I, and now that I think of it, like, I, I also kind of saw this with Cuba as well, where like, whenever Cuba's brought up, you kind of see, um, immediately like, okay, well, Castro hates the gays. And so like, like there's just all this like immediate, um, outrage. And I think like, a lot of radicals, especially like in the U.S. and and in Canada, were really excited about the Kurds because they were able to like have this radical movement that also seemed on the front to be progressive. Um, right, and and you know the the founder of the uh, supposed ideology that these Kurds in Syria have uh, was himself a Zionist, uh, Murray Bookchin. And, you know, I, I think we should talk about Cuba for a second because, you know, um, there were there was persecution against LGBT people uh, in the early years. Um, and a lot of that came from, you know, misconceptions about what gay people were about. Um, and I'm not I'm not justifying it, but I am trying to explain it because, you know, back back before the revolution, Cuba was like, you know, a casino for, you know, international mafias. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like a lot of uh, pedophilia there. People, rich Westerners, white people would go there and have sex with young boys. Um, and so that contributed to a lot of the misconceptions around gay people. Now, Castro apologized, first of all. I mean, that, that just needs to be pointed out straight out because um, it's important and, uh, and it's not often that you see, you know, strong men uh, apologize for their mistakes. Um, and today, uh, you know, Castro's daughter leads the charge for LGBT rights in Cuba and Cuba's leading the world in LGBT rights. Um, so, you know, it's like, 
you know, nobody should come away from this interview saying, oh, Alex and Mila are against human rights or we're against LGBT rights or or women's rights. You know, it's just that these are canards. They're being, I mean, sometimes it's a fake issue. Sometimes it's a real issue. But in either case, the issue is being used to worsen the situation and open up the country to Western capital. Yeah, and I've noticed this a lot when... um... Like I was uh, in my master's, I did like my thesis on uh, like revolutions in the Middle East. And um, it, it was very saddening and tragic to me because I think there are genuine uh, issues that are like women's issues or LGBT issues that really do need to be addressed. Um, but then, you know, the fact that there were over here, like people are using these issues as a pretext for violating these countries' sovereignty, um, makes a lot of people suspicious of them. And so like, there's a lot of people who, who are like, like people, I was doing like some studies on Egypt and, and reading up on that. And there were people who were trying to justify FGM by saying like, oh, like it's these imperialists that want to come in and like change this or make you like not do this or whatever, which is like Asaf Bayat wrote about it. He called them self-serving anti-imperialists, which is completely true. And it's almost like, you know, we're giving these people the opportunity to deny uh, progress in, in LGBT issues and women's issues by saying no, those issues are just for like the West. Like those are just that's right. Just yeah, by linking it to imperialism, which mm-hmm. they rightfully resist, we give them an excuse to resist those things. Yeah, and so like there was a speech. There's a recent speech by Assad that made everyone pissed because he was saying, um, like he was mocking like trans rights and saying like though like the people in the West think that you can change your gender. Which like I yeah like I don't agree with what he was saying in his speech at all, um, and I don't think he should like mock trans people. But like he and he's got bigger fish to fry. Yeah, I he's mean. got bigger fish. To, like I'm like dude, like Al Qaeda's like right there. Like yeah. why are you talking about this? Um, Come back when you've t- retaken Idlib. You know? <laughs> it was like yeah, like I mean I don't know, and like that's another thing is like I like. I again like I'm not a fan of him but like I've just spoken against like Al-Qaeda and everyone thinks that's like the worst thing in the world but yeah I did an episode on that last episode so I won't go into it again but um but basically like my point is like he was given like a gift box from like the U.S. and from like this especially this new administration that's like trying to like you know like oh we're so great we're letting progressive or we're letting trans people into the army now and whatever like they're and they're you know they're giving these gifts to <laughs> to people like us said to like rally people against lgbt rights right. by being like oh yeah like this is just a western cultural imposition and so it's very tragic to me that's yeah well and you know uh if we look at China, like even uh, when um, enemies of Washington, you know, want to do something to improve the situation of LGBT people or, or women, uh, they're attacked as sexist or, or homophobic. 
um, you had that whole incident. I forget. There was some Chinese official who said that because of uh, Beijing's policies in Xinjiang, um, women were no longer baby making machines. And he was speaking to the kind of conservative fundamentalism that, you know, told women that they were that. And he said, that's not the case anymore. And so there was a huge blow up on the internet and people were saying, oh my God, how sexist. But it's like, no, it's the opposite. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that I, you know what? That actually made me really pissed off because people were, atta- uh, people attacked me for like simply pointing out an inconsistency because it, again, if you, it, the standards are not the same. So here in pro-choice movements, right? Like you, People, women always say that like but like right we're not baby making machines yeah we're not baby making machines like that is a um i've been to like rallies of where i've seen people with signs that literally yeah. say stuff like this um and like or i've you know i've been to pro-life rallies because i went to a catholic school and i've seen people counter protest with signs that say like we're not baby making machines yeah. So I pointed that out and I was like, I've literally seen people say this, like to counter protests, pro-life people. So like, why, like, why is it bad when like a Chinese official says it? And then all of a sudden people, you know, go, oh my God, you support forced sterilization. Yeah. Um, You know, and again, they were saying like, and then I said, no, I do not. I was saying that people use the same rhetoric and they say, oh, well, it's bad because there's forced sterilization in Xinjiang. And I was saying, okay, well, so then is, should we outlaw abortion in the U S because Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist? Like it just, you know, the standards are just so like unbalanced and that just never sat right with me. Yeah. I mean, the imperialists are impervious to countervailing facts. Um, You know, it's like, uh, somebody says, oh, well, you know, they're doing forced steriliza- sterilization in Xinjiang. Okay, so why has the population increased so much more rapidly or drastically than uh, the Han population in the rest of China? It, you know, it doesn't make sense. And you can't. And, and meanwhile, all these claims about Xinjiang, um, you know, Ali Abu Nima last night had a great article about how Adrian Zenz, who is the source, the sole source pretty much of all of these claims about forced labor, forced sterilization, forced re-education, um, and, and so on, uh, is, is like a believer, like he's, he's an anti-Semite. He's an evangelical anti-Semite who, you know, believes that the end times will come when the Jews retake the Temple Mount, but that the Jews won't go to heaven. You know, it's like, it's like all the, and you have this total kook that's like being, uh, you know, used by the media to justify the empire um, and uh, their their efforts to basically they want Jing, they want Xinjiang because um, because because it, it'll stop China's Belt and Road Initiative. But you know, one thing that I actually found um, doing I, I never published this, but I, I think I tweeted about it is that the first uh, CIA officer who was killed uh, in duty was uh stationed in Xinjiang. So it's been like a long time um point of interest for for the CIA to watch China, to watch Iran, to um watch Russia, you know, um it was it, at the time it was used as a listening post against the Soviet Union. But uh you know, geo geopolitically speaking it's super important. And so we have all this human rights rhetoric that's being used now 
um, to to try to you know chip it off from China. Yeah, and I mean, I've also made this point that like you know I like I am not a China expert. Like I don't trust Zens, but like I've told people like I'm open to you know any information really. Like I'm yeah. not you know. I'm not trying to like affirm any sort of narrative I have. I'm sure like China's not saintly or whatever, but what are we going to do about it? Like we are in the Imperial core. Um, what am I like, what am I going to do about it from Canada? Canada has been forcibly sterilizing indigenous women. Right. Um, like why are we not dealing with that? Like I have the power to do that because I have like, officials that are democratically accountable to me so like why is it like i like you know we have an ongoing like brutality against indigenous people in canada here so like why are we focusing on something that's like all the way around the world that we cannot really exercise any influence on short of intervention and i think that's what's upset me about the current state of the left and like the imperial left especially these like anarchists or whatever you want to call it, is they say, oh, we don't want intervention, we're anti-war. Um, but also if you don't condemn everything that we tell you to condemn and spend time, like spend equal time condemning China that you would spend condemning the US or Canada, then that must mean that you're like an evil red brown, whatever you want to call it. Right. And like my point is like, well, no, obviously I'm going to spend more time on like the people who are democratically accountable to me that just makes more sense um so yeah i mean that's also just been a point of yeah and and you know they say they're anti-war but the you know same media institutions and intelligence uh institutions that lied us into every war of the past 50 years uh they just regurgitate everything that they say um you know and it's like like you said, you know, people are always like, oh, Venezuela has no electricity. Oh, Iran has no electricity. Well, it's like, what about the indigenous people in Canada or the U.S. that don't have electricity? You know, mm -hmm. uh, what about the, the black people living in the cities that have no heating, you know, um, in, in the cold? Uh, there, there, there's I mean, I'll give credit to the anarchists and the State Department so socialists for, uh, you know, advocating for, you know, human rights in our countries, but it's not like as, as citizens of Western countries, uh, it's, it's not equal, you know, and, and you don't need to give equal criticism to Bashar Assad. Nothing that you can say like about Bashar Assad really matters. You know, it's like, what, Oh, you want, you want me to like, I, I don't support Assad. I don't, but I'm not going to condemn him because it's performative and it serves no purpose. Um, yeah, like it's not like he's gonna be like, oh my god, this guy on Twitter is like, oh my right. god, like he's, I'm gonna stop, you know. And I mean, I've, I've, it's funny because like I have um, been very critical of like the Assad, both him and his father, um, from the perspective of what they've done in Lebanon um, prior to 2011. Like I'm, and so it, it has been kind of a trip for me to see everybody talking about him all of a sudden and like you know like there are people who probably didn't even know what Syria was until 2011 right now like talking to me and being like how dare you not condemn Assad and I'm thinking like 
buddy, I have been like critical of these guys before <laughs> you knew who they were. Right. But I am not going to be critical of them from the perspective of Canadian politics because I don't think my government has the right to, you know, go in and help these religious fanatics take power. Like that's like I'll criticize what they're doing in Lebanon when when if it happened to you know occupy it again sure but like that's from a well, and it's it's funny too to see like leftists go after um certain journalists who who have changed their views on on Syria you know over the course of the war um who were originally um very much against the anti uh, against the government and then really shift their focus towards criticism and examination of the uh you know western and Gulf and NATO and, and Turkey backed uh, rebels um, because it's like, Oh, well, you know, they were at a meeting with Putin. So um, Putin was in the room. So that, you know, at, at that point, that was when everything changed. And it's like, no, yeah. not, not, a, first of all, no. Uh, second of all, um, you know, it, I, I think that it's generally a good thing to like examine new evidence and change your mind. You know, that's not like staying yeah. against you or uh, anything like that. It's like a sign of integrity, if anything. Look, I used to be a libertarian until I was like 19. <laughs> like, I think it's good to change your views for sure. And another thing with, with Syria in particular is that the context has changed. Like there were progressive people in 2011 who were protesting about yeah. issues like torture. Um, and, and that is very important. But the, in terms of like, who is the most powerful opposition, i.e. the opposition that would take power if the government fell, those are not progressive people. And so those are not worthy of support. So I could see in 2011 supporting the protests when you weren't sure who was the most powerful group. But why would you, like, I, I can also see why you would change your mind once you saw that, like, the likely outcome was Al Qaeda taking power. Um, particularly if you're sympathetic to minority groups in the region. Um, right. And, 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 you know, the empire really covered all its bases with like appealing to the, to the left, because, you know, um, once it became kind of clear that the, uh, the Sunni rebel groups were not being led by like progressive idealists, uh, that's when a lot of the, um, you know, Kurdish YPG, uh ypj um propaganda ramped up um and and you know um when it became clear oh these people want a caliphate which is a state we need an anti-state alternative you know um so it, it, it you know syria was really just like the most sophisticated propaganda operation in in, in world history in my opinion yeah um, i I just can't think of anything that comes even close. And, you know, I, I really worry, uh, you know, what, what the next series is going to look like. Well, I like, for me, that was the moment where I'm like, I don't really know if I can identify with like the left and like, like the left here, because I'm like, this is just not working for me. Like I can't, I can't back like these rebels. I can't like, because, and we talked about this on my last, my last episode, I interviewed a Syrian Christian who 
um talked talked about this with me a bit but like even if you support the Kurds like I am sympathetic to Kurdish people and like their plight in the Middle East even if you support them like they're not gonna take over Assad right so like like even like even if they get their own territory like they're not going to become the government of right. Syria so like again you have to you know think this through um but I think also like one of the issues is that people are not very well equipped to talk about Islam and uh Islamist extremism um post 9-11 because yeah. you see like like the left they really are scared of criticizing these extremist groups even though they don't represent like 99% of Muslims, but they're afraid to criticize them. Um, and they also don't understand that Christians don't have the same status in a place like the Middle East that they would have in the US, right? And so I think that, you know, that's been a huge problem. And But I, I personally, yeah, like Syria is a big moment for me and making me feel very disillusioned from the left. So definitely feel that frustration. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't know. It's been gradual for me. It's, you know, death by a thousand cuts, you know, uh, I, I got started covering black lives matter in 2014. That's how I got my start in journalism. Um, after Eric Garner and Michael Brown were killed and it was a very different movement from what, what it is today. Um, and I I don't want to get too much into it, but, um, you know, with this, past summer you know a, f- a few comments that i put out about how things had changed and what people were actually doing um and how you know white anarchists were going into black neighborhoods and destroying things uh, i got a lot of heat for that and you know it's like my my views you know black lives matter has changed and, and i've changed but like my principles are very much the same like i still like believe in economic equality. I still believe in racial equality, uh, mm-hmm. gender equality, all those things. Um, but you know, there's so much ultra leftism in these movements that they really have the opposite effect of what the people involved are seeking. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think, you know, going forward, people like, again, I don't even know what to call it now because I'm like, the left seems like it's just not like it's just become subsumed into liberalism. Yeah. Um, But whatever this is going forward, like whether it's like Marxist, socialist, whatever, like I think there needs to be um, more discipline and better understanding of movements and like we like you know, well, I mean, look at Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong is like the, the perfect example um, that that's kind of fresh in all our memories where um, these people were going around uh, and uh, beating up minorities and beating up elderly people and beating up communists. And just because they were good at fighting the police and frankly, the police were much more restrained. If you tried that shit in the U.S., you'd get your skull cracked. <laughs> that's what I was thinking, too. I was like, wow, how like the you can't do that over there. (laughs) Right. Um, Because, because, you know, China knew that, you know, the more skulls they crack, the more pressure they're going to get from, uh, from the international community and the U S police can crack as many skulls as they want without, without that concern. Um, They're more militarized as well. Right. Like the U S. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know um, it's, it's such a sign of our times that, you know, I remember uh, during the first wave of BLM, 
that um, there was a lot of uh, emphasis around the Pentagon's 1033 program, which was a program that took all the um, hand-me-downs from Afghanistan and Iraq, the the Bearcats, the MRAPs, um, the Bayonets. Um, Rand Paul had this fantastic speech, actually, uh, in in Congress, where he was admonishing the head of the 1033 program working under Obama, asking him why, you know, police officers in the U.S. had, you know, 6,000 bayonets and what they needed bayonets for. Um, and now, you know, he's very much anti-Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I think part of that has to do with uh, Trump um, and his, his, uh, his closeness to Trump. But also a big part of that has to do with how BLM changed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly more radical than it used to be. And when, like I said, like, besides like actually prosecuting police officers who kill black people, it, the number two issue in BLM in 2014 was demilitarize the police, which like had a broad appeal. Like we don't need, you know, a town with two police officers having three armored bearcats. Um, we don't need that. There's no use for it. it it's senseless. Um, and now it's like defund the police, which like, personally, I don't, I don't like police. I, I don't <laughs> like, I'm not afraid to it. I, I have a thing against cops. Um, but like, I also understand that like saying, um, you know, abolish the police, um, is not going to have, uh, the wide appeal that demilitarize the police does. And you know what? I actually don't think that it's going to have the appeal in black communities that, you know, uh, white anarchists might think it does. Yeah. I mean, it also kind of shows how the U S left is very, influenced by libertarianism i think because to me it's like if you are still in the context of capitalism and you abolish police you're just gonna get like the amazon police or like the right right police or whatever so i mean yeah i totally see that 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 um you know that concern and i think like something that, that goes back to exactly what i was saying about how like how the the approach is so ultra left that it has the reverse effect of like what people are actually advocating for you know yeah yeah well it does seem to like actually again and again it's almost like ironic because these are the people who accuse so like so you know anti-imperialist socialists of being like red brown or whatever but they're the ones that you know have much more in common with the right when it comes to economics um or at least the old school right i know the new right now is a bit more like economic populist but but yeah i mean we um we are coming up on time there's so much more to talk about i know i know and like this is very very interesting talk so maybe we'll have a round two someday um but where can people find you so right now i'm writing for substack uh you might find my articles elsewhere because i invite people who publish uh editors at alternative media outlets to republish my articles but you can find me at Substack at Real Alex Ruby. That's R U B I. Um, I have uh, another article I'm working on right now that uh, is going to. Well, there were some leaks that came out that are really going to uh, impact our understanding of uh, of re- some really important history. So I, I I hope that people keep an eye out for that. Um, and you can find me on Twitter also at Real Alex Ruby. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on and I'll link all the the stuff in the description so that people can find you and uh, to the listeners, we'll see you next time.
takes us. <laughs>